Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You hold the line faithful to duty, confronting our nation's foes with implacable will. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. You hold the line true to honor, living by a moral code regardless of who is watching. Our surrender will be voluntary because by that time we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. Okay, everybody, welcome back to a special episode of the Holding the Line podcast. I'm your host, Commander Guy Snodgrass, U.S. Navy retired, and joining me as always is our co-host, recently retired U.S. Army Colonel Mark Solomons. Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Guy. How's it going? You know, going great. I really appreciated the opportunity we had in the previous episode to talk with uh, Dr. Sam Ward at the uh, UCSD. A lot of great information about what's going on with coronavirus. And it's, and it's an interesting segue, and that's why we wanted to do this special episode is because over the last few days, an, an issue with the United States Navy has captured not only the attention of the national security community, but, the, but has captured in an outsized way the attention of the American public. And that's the four-page memorandum that was sent from Captain Brett Crozier, who was the commanding officer of USS Theodore Roosevelt, a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier that was on patrol, had had rapidly increasing cases of coronavirus on board his ship, and ultimately had published, or not published, but he had authored a four-page memorandum he sent up to Navy leadership that somehow got into the public domain. And then just yesterday, Navy leadership fired him. And then today, you know, here back in the United States, we are greeted by social media of Captain Crozier being given a hero's departure as he leaves the carrier for the very last time after having been relieved from command. So, you know, this is something that I, I feel... I can understand because I'm a recently retired U.S. Navy commander. I served with Captain Crozier when we were both in uh, Japan on board the USS Ronald Reagan, where he was the executive officer, and I was the commanding officer of a strike fighter squadron. But I've got to wonder, like, how does this hit your ears and eyes as a as a member, a long-standing member of the United States Army? Yeah, Guy, thanks for that a, a great uh, summary of what's transpired uh, with that commander. As a leader in general, just, you know, my case being the Army, it does strike me as a kind of a sad situation and what's happened. Here's here's a guy who's dedicated his whole life to serving his country, thinks he's doing the right thing, and in the end he's relieved. Now, I'm not saying he's totally innocent in that, and that's what I think we want to get into today as we go into this discussion here. You know, right, wrong, or indifferent, the facts are out there on, on what transpired, and I'd like to take a little time to review them and, and share with our listeners how do leaders in this business get in this situation and and were his actions right? Were the Navy's actions right? Were they both right or are they both wrong? Let's let's take it a little bit further. Those are all good points. And, you know, in some respects, I'm going to turn some of the questioning over to you. Like I mentioned, you're a recently retired member of the United States Army. I've had the, I guess you could say, luxury. I grew up in the U.S. Navy, uh, was a senior leader on my way towards aircraft carrier command myself. In fact, Captain Brett Crozier, when he was the executive officer of the Ronald Reagan, uh, had had made generously had made the time to sit down with me and talk about that career path and what it would mean not only for, for me for my family for my uh, future in the U.S. Navy uh, should I go down that path so you know I've had the luxury of getting to know him from both a professional and personal sense uh, and I'll tell you up front I mean I think very highly of him both as a person as a as a member of his family and as a leader but I'm curious you know why don't you start throwing some questions my way and we'll kind of like you said we'll tease this apart and see what we think about who's right who's wrong and what does it mean for 
uh, people who practice national security? That's a great question, Guy. And let me start by turning around and ask you, what is it leader? What are leaders' responsibilities when it comes to taking care of soldiers, you know, equipment, mission? You know, what is the priority with those when it comes to accomplishing the mission? You know, and it's interesting. I think every service, whether you're, as you put it, a soldier, sailor, airman, marine, you're serving in the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, that, you know, every service has their own regulations. They have their own expectations for leaders, depending on whether you're a frontline unit, whether you're uh, maybe, uh, you know, kind of, as they say, in the rear with the gear and your support unit. But I think the overarching thing that makes a commanding officer or a unit leader in the U.S. military unique is that unlike being the CEO of a corporation, unlike being the president of a company, you are responsible when you're a commanding officer. You're responsible not only for the mission, you're responsible for the assets of that organization, meaning, you know, in my case, fighter jets, in your case, you know, armor. Um, you're responsible for those things, but unlike being a CEO, you're also responsible for the health and well-being of the men and women under your charge. And I think that certainly strikes at the crux of uh, what happened here with Captain Crozier. So would you say the mission takes priority or the uh, the men, you know, sailors, soldiers, Marines, the airmen, who, which is more important? Yeah, and, and, and you know, I'm going to give you the answer we used to our student's chagrin when I was a Top Gun instructor. Every time it was, it depends. And that really is the reality here. I think I've, I've had a chance to talk with some members of the media as I'm helping them better understand the military perspective on this one. I would tell you that as a commanding officer of that strike fire squadron in Japan, we were stationed in Japan. We're part of what's called the four deployed naval force. And we were there with the express purpose of supporting specifically the government of Japan, because that's where we were based out of, but also the, our allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific. We were there for stability. We were there for peace. So, I felt very passionate that the mission came first. In fact, my squadron's mantra, what I used as a commanding officer, was uh, war fighting first, dam busters always, dam busters being the name of uh, the nickname of the squadron. The implication being, look, I mean, we have a job to do, and that, that is our priority as a national-level unit that's out here doing work with international allies and partners. But underlying all that was making sure that you take care of the men and women under your charge and that and you can't get away from that so i'd say it depends because there will be moments in time much like captain crozier mentioned in his letter that if you're in wartime this carrier would be at sea and we would handle this appropriately he also mentions in his letter and i think this strikes at the core of your question that this is not wartime uh, we are in a he and his crew were in a position where they could safely get the carrier to port and handle the outbreak of coronavirus on board his ship uh, so that they minimize the chance of either serious illness or loss of life. Okay, so let's peel it back a little further. Uh, here we have a carrier it's, uh, out in the uh, South China Sea mm -hmm. doing his patrols, you know, uh, doing his national security thing, and the commander gets reports of coronavirus on board. At what point does that commander make the call to bring his ship into port and notify his higher-ups? Right. And so when you start thinking about a ship, you know, you've got these military assets. We call them uh, high-demand, low-density, right? So everybody wants them, but there's just not enough of them to go around. And so we've seen that play out with the U.S. Central Command commander. Uh, Mattis was widely known as a general uh, when he commanded U.S. Central Command who— practically demanded two carrier presence all the time because he just wanted to have them in theater. It was a great way to show deterrence. Weeks before the sailors began to show signs and be tested positive for 
coronavirus, they had made a port call to Vietnam. Yet again, that's another major event that the National Command Authority, that the Secretary of Defense, that others uh, in the Pentagon are making that decision of where the carrier will and won't go in order to show the flag, to, to demonstrate U.S. resolve uh, and that we're open for business. So uh, there's been, you know, we don't know for a fact, but there's been some people surmising that that's likely where coronavirus may have made its way onto the ship is after that poor call. You get a week or two uh, afterwards. Now you get three sailors and then six sailors and then 15. And it begins to that exponential increase of uh, where those cases are going. And now he's concerned by what he's seeing. And so that's where, you know, it's, so it's not gonna be the captain saying, I'm just gonna hook a UE and pull this carrier into port. He's gonna be coordinating that with his strike group admiral, who's also on board the carrier, and with higher headquarters like 7th Fleet and US Pacific Command that are both uh, in Hawaii. Okay, well, without getting into national security uh, specific numbers, would you say there there is a certain amount that would cause the leadership to allow him to make a call to request a change of mission to hire? Yeah, and I think we saw this play out real time, right? So before Captain Crozier's four-page memorandum was leaked or was published in the San Francisco Chronicle, which is the first outlet that published that letter, before that happened, he was already pierside in Guam. So somewhere along that pathway, as the initial caseload was beginning to build, Captain Crozier, uh, we surmise, uh, expressed concerns to his strike group admiral and others, and they'd already pulled the carrier into port. So the, the, at the time of this letter coming out, and at the time that there's uh, increasing concern about the rapid rise of the number of coronavirus cases on board the aircraft carrier, it was already pierside in Guam, and the ship was basically being quarantined in place, meaning the sailors, as we understand it, were not being allowed to uh, leave the ship. They were just being asked to stay on board. Uh, so you keep around roughly all 5,000 sailors there. So it's fair to say this letter was not the first instance of the commander reporting up his chain of command that there was an issue on board. Yeah, I think that's safe to say. I can tell you only from my vantage point, Captain Crozier himself has not spoken publicly on this. I think wisely he's he's made a decision to uh, keep his own counsel. And, uh, you know, with recent events uh, being fired because his letter was made public, that's probably good sense for the time being. That being said, look, as a commanding officer on board an aircraft carrier is one of eight squadron CEOs, right? And then you have an air wing commander, you have the commanding officer of the aircraft carrier, and you also have your strike group admiral that is all on board the carrier. The number one way you're going to be working these issues is by A, walking to the stateroom, right? So the office uh, where that leader resides, and you're gonna have a face-to-face -face conversation. You're gonna pick up the phone, you're gonna call, you're going to send emails. And my gut tells me, and I, I cannot base this off fact because I simply don't know at this point, and I don't think anybody does other than maybe very senior Navy leadership and Captain Crozier, but my gut tells me that for whatever reason, Captain Crozier didn't feel he was getting the responsiveness and the support he needed, and that's why he would memorialize in four pages a memorandum that he would then formally send up through the chain of command. Yes, that's what I keep struggling with. As, as leader, obviously, writing a four-page memo, at least in the Army, would not be the first response to notify your higher-ups. A series of emails, offline conversations, sharing your concerns with your higher-ups would probably be more along a protocol lines there. So writing this letter just strikes me as odd. So we would like to know why did he write the letter? If what you're saying is true, that brings up a series of other concerns that you know, maybe he didn't feel he was getting enough attention on the offline uh, uh, conversations he was having. 
Right. And I, it, you know, the honest answer, not only between the two of us and, and our listeners, people who are, are considering the situation is that we don't have enough facts to go off right now to make a really intelligent decision uh, from even from a leadership or an ethics standpoint, what the right answer is. Again, though, to your point about what standard operating procedure, it wouldn't be the fact that you would just your first stop would not be to write a four page memorandum. Your first stop, as I mentioned, would be to have those conversations, to send those emails, to request uh, more resources than you have on board. And I, I think what you can't dismiss is probably underlying all this is just when you're in the heat of this battle, you know, President Trump himself has called it a war against an invisible enemy. Okay, well, Captain Crozier's on the front line of that battle. He's got a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, one of only a small number of capital ships for the entire United States Navy for our country. And he's seeing a exponential increase in the number of cases on board. He's now pierside, and he's saying we're not we're not at sea. We're not in a conflict with a like an actual enemy. So can we expedite our medical response to ensure that we care for as many sailors under his charge as possible? And and so to your point, I mean, yeah, I don't think a four page memorandum in, in any leader's toolkit would be the very first thing they go to. My gut tells me knowing. Uh, Captain Crozier, as I do, that likely that letter was written in a response to what he perceived to be some version of either inactivity or not moving at the pace at which he felt uh, being on those front lines he needed to see. But we're going to need to wait and actually hear from Captain Crozier uh, to be able to ascertain that. All right. That takes us to another tricky part there with the, how this memo ended up in the uh, the media. Did Captain Crozier leak it? Did someone on board the ship leak it? Did a family member leak it? How in the world does this memo get to the press? And we may not know that for, you know, a couple of days or, or weeks in, in this particular situation. Right. And, and you nailed it. We're not going to know. I think that was a mainstay of yesterday's press conference where Acting Secretary of the Navy, Thomas Modley, and he was joined by the Chief of Naval Operations, so the senior uniformed member of the U.S. Navy, uh, Admiral Gilday. They both took turns talking about their disappointment in the situation and when they announced the firing of Captain Crozier. And one of the two main reasons they cited for his firing, one was their lack of trust and confidence in his ability to command a nuclear-powered carrier because they felt that the urgency he had expressed in that memorandum had caused undue concern and undue, as they said, panic with the sailors they led and with the family members. And, 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 and as we saw, I mean, it hit the media. So there's a reality there that this memo took on a life of its own and it kind of captured the national attention span for at least 24 to 48 hours. So that's one aspect. The second one, and the one that certainly caught my ear was when Acting Secretary of the Navy Modley said that he wasn't being fired because he had leaked the memo. They have no proof. Senior Navy leadership have no proof that he leaked the memo himself. It's that he had sent the memo to enough people via email that he had increased the likelihood that it would be leaked. So he didn't take enough precautions to ensure it didn't leak, uh, which I find to be a more difficult, troubling rationale for firing someone. Because if he didn't leak it, if he, you know, playing devil's advocate, you know, at least from my vantage point in the U.S. Navy, when you email senior leaders, you are typically uh, emailing several at a time because multiple people are in your chain of command for a, a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. You might have naval reactors on the Naval Yard in Washington, D.C. You might have the chief of naval op operations in the Pentagon. You might have your strike group admiral. You might have seventh—you know, so you've got these various admirals, and you're likely CCing their staffs. 
the chief of staff, the executive assistant, the flag aide, you know, others who need to be on that chain. So without hearing more from Secretary Modley or from the chief of naval operations, it's just hard to ascertain, you know, is he carbon copying his roommate from college or is he carbon copying the staffs for these very senior leaders who he's trying to communicate with in the very first place. And once again, we just don't know. So let's uh, take a look at the so what of all this guy. I mean, here we have a series of events that unfolded over a four to five day period. But in the bigger picture there, what does this mean for the Navy in terms of its uh, environment, you know, in terms of families, sailors, et cetera? You know, here we have a you know, senior captain trying to do what he thinks is the right thing and ends up with him getting relieved. What, is that, what message does that send to the force? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think at the end of the day, that's where Navy leadership may have needed to take a little more time to consider this course of action. It was a very public very definitive decision by acting secretary of the navy modley from the way the press conference went yesterday part of that intent was to demonstrate that he is in charge that he made a difficult call and was sticking with it uh, during a period of time in which he felt that this commanding officer had performed below his standards i would say though that it it misses the larger point of what's going on both in america's society and also the perceptions within the lifelines of the u.s navy itself Right. So if you think back just over the last few years alone, you know, I'm a recently retired Navy commander. I mean, we've taken a lot of hits, a lot of hits within the lifelines, meaning a uh, erosion in the trust and confidence of senior leaders uh, because of some decisions and some actions that have been taken. And also an erosion of trust with the American public because of some of those issues. And, and to name them. Right. So 2017, you had ships that were ill-equipped and unprepared to put to sea were asked to do so. Those commanding officers had raised their hands on multiple occasions and said, we're not, we're not ready to go. We don't have what we need. They still put to sea and you had two sh- ship collisions, the USS Fitzgerald and the USS John S. McCain. And so un- the unfortunate result from both of those collisions was a total of US- 17 U.S. sailors were killed. It was an incredible tragedy for the United States Navy and it highlighted at that period of time, just a scant three years ago, as a commanding officer, if you see something that's not right, you're expected to raise your hand, you're expected to do, to make those difficult calls. That's why, as we say, you're making the big bucks. But those COs were relieved and the senior Navy leadership basically pushed all responsibility down on their shoulders. And many would say rightfully so. The buck stops with the commanding officer. And that's an incredible, important part of what makes the United States Navy unique. The downside though, is it also within the lifelines of the Navy created this very significant breach of trust between those who serve and then those who are in senior leadership positions in the Pentagon, because it felt like a lot of finger pointing downhill. You follow that within the last three years of the incoming chief of Naval operations, the one who is supposed to be CNO right now, right before Admiral Gilday, Admiral Bill Moran was Fired. So he was fired because he had maintained contact with a Navy commander who was no longer in the service. Uh, and, it, and it was seen as not in the best interest of the U.S. Navy. So he'd already been Senate confirmed. And before he could actually take office, he's fired. You've got uh, Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher, someone who had run afoul of the Navy judicial system for actions taken in combat. I don't think in that situation alone, we'll know all the facts, but we do know that this is a active duty member of the Navy SEALs who was going on Fox News repeatedly to campaign on his own behalf, something that would be a no-no for any service member, but gets the pass, is reinstated as a SEAL, and is reinstated as a Navy chief vice being retired as a first-class petty officer. So uh, that caused a lot of consternation within the force. You have the Secretary of the Navy at the time, Richard Spencer, was fired over it. Uh, You have 
budgetary pressure right now. In fact, the Navy just just lost billions of dollars that was diverted to the border wall because the Navy kind of complained about some of their budgetary concerns. So, I mean, it's just a hit after hit after hit. So in the light of those optics over the last few years, um, you've got Captain Brett Crozier, who has been widely perceived by many as, whether you like it or not, the four-page memo is out. American public has responded strongly saying, wow, what an amazing captain. He is obviously taking a risk because he's doing it for the best uh, the health and welfare of the men and women he leads. And that's that's the situation in which senior Navy leadership fired him. And I think that it was an unforced error, but it highlights, to your point, a lot of things that if you're serving in uniform, if you're a reservist, a member of the National Guard or a civilian, that you just have to be cognizant of uh, that that interplay between staying within the lifelines and, and what happens when things break out into the public domain. That's a great uh, summary uh, wrap-up, Guy. I appreciate your insights on all that. And both, I think you would agree with me, Decisions like this at that level are never easy, and there's often a lot of a behind-the-scenes discussion before it's made. But in terms of a bigger picture, and not just with the Navy, I mean, Army, Air Force, Marines all have similar challenges, and the uh, the culture and the message they send has to be considered with each decision he's made. So do you think the uh, Navy's culture, has it been like this for many years, or is this something relatively recent? No, I think this is a continuation, and to your point, it's not it's not unique to the United States Navy. Uh, all services within the U.S. military tend to have a, a mindset that uh, a lot can happen within the lifelines of the military. A lot can happen behind closed doors. Uh, and that's where it should reside. You know, you chew through these kinds of leadership challenges behind closed doors. And and uh, I don't know about your personal experience. I can tell you mine. From basically day one, you learn that, you know, you don't talk to the media. You don't share things with the media. That is the purview of public affairs officers and senior leaders alone. So anytime something at a lower level breaks out and is highlighted like this, it can become a challenge. What I can tell you, though, what we should all take away from this is that organizations like West Point, Annapolis, the Navy War College, Army War College, Air Force War College, all these institutions of higher learning within the military and even within civil service can use this as a phenomenal case study to chew over because you could easily arrive at a position where at the end of the day, guess what? They're both right. Captain Crozier could likely be well defended by saying that he was very concerned at the tip of the spear with what he was seeing in the ex exponential increase of coronavirus cases on board his ship. You're just playing the numbers. There was potential for sailors to lose their life if he didn't get more support. And so, therefore, he uh, he sent the warning flare up the chain of command and, and was looking for increased support uh, from the chain of command. And, and you could say, hey, that was the right course of action, especially with what we learned after those ship collisions in 2017. You could also say equally that Navy leadership was correct in saying the way in which it played out, the manner in which the captain handled it, although his intent was in the right place, maybe the actions, you know, A for intent and A for effort, but an F for execution. So... Navy leadership lost their trust and confidence. If you if you don't retain that, then you should not be in a position of command. They made a tough decision. And so ultimately you could say, well, you know, both parties were right, but the the way it was resolved uh, is probably a net loss for the Navy. Yeah, well, you make a great point on uh, the case study. I, you're, I hope you're right and hope these uh, professional military education uh, schools and, and the academies take this as a uh, leadership study and, you know, really put the, uh, the screws to it and see, you know, 
what what can be what better results could come out of such a situation there it's always sad to you know see one of our own get relief or potentially doing the right thing there there's just a better way to go about doing it i think yeah and and i think that again whether it's a case study but for everybody who's actively serving in a position of authority the big takeaway is to be predictive to think through your actions recognize that especially the more senior you become the more likely that there are to be second and third order effects that you just didn't anticipate. So, you know, as uh, as Madison and I would talk about often, you know, never walk yourself into an L-shaped ambush, right? So don't put yourself in a situation where you're going to inadvertently be able to be taken down like this. And, um, you know, certainly in the, in the light and the clarity of hindsight, even just a few days gone, just as you mentioned, there's, you know, there may have been other ways to get the same desired result. In a, in a way that didn't result with the captain being fired. But if you are in a position of authority, you just have to always be thinking about how do you do what's right for your people? How do you do what's right for your chain of command? And then how do you navigate those waters so that you can do so where everyone went? That's a, a great way to wind, wind it up. And for all those leaders out there, you know, this is not just the uh, naval uh, problem slash uh, concern here. I mean, think of the Army and you're out there in Afghanistan and Iraq on a forward operating base or a FOB. And if you were to have a corona outbreak there how would how what actions would you take would you you know sequester everybody would you move them somewhere else i mean there's a lot of different ways to go and it needs to be thought through ahead of time so we're anticipating what actions to take not reacting to them you bet awesome thanks mark 